We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 133, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22, and Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. It's been interesting since Janelle and I have moved here to Birmingham. It seems that almost every week, and sometimes more than once a week, I have conversations with people who have very negative attitudes toward the church. And, and it often is the same kind of complaint, and I'm, I'm sure that you have this experience too. I hear stuff like this, that the whole idea of church carries kind of overtones of pompous, arrogant hypocrisy. That there's a whole group of people for whom church is nothing more than a bureaucratic institution that's filled with bigots who don't like gays or the poor or on the other end of the spectrum, conservatives. But across the range, it seems to some that the church here is nothing more than a club that guards the status quo. And I encounter this view of the church quite frequently. And and the irony is that there's this whole mass of people in our community who have very spiritual interest, but the church is one of two things for them, either a barrier or worse, it's just irrelevant to their kind of spiritual journey and what they're going through. Now, on the other hand, we do need to be honest, there are a lot of people in our community for whom church is not a negative thing. There are some really incredible things happening over the mountain. The homeless are being fed, addicts are being helped, and marriages are being saved, and and these incredible things are happening. And in the church, for all of its weakness, there's something happening here in Birmingham. There are medical clinics, and there are these incredible schools like Restoration Academy. I mean, this is a shining gem of something that God is doing. And and throughout this community, there are people that are coming to faith in Christ. And they're learning how to pray and how to get over themselves and how to reach out beyond themselves. And there are thousands and thousands of people over the mountain who, through the church, are discovering the joy of knowing the Creator. And, And they're discovering what's satisfying about serving others. And they're discovering that it's right and good to worship God. And into this situation of over the mountain with its goodness and its brokenness, God is doing something new. He's starting a new church. And in the face of all of the alternatives, a really good question for us to ask is this. What kind of church are we going to be? And when we look at these passages of Scripture that were read to us tonight, when we listen to them, to Psalm 133, read by Kelly, um, to the passage in John, read by Wendy, and the passage in Acts by Heather, when we listen to these, these passages of Scripture, 
If you listen really close, you can see something. You can see the door crack open and you can see a vista. You can, you can catch a glimpse of what the church is called to be and of what we are called to be. We see in these few passages of Scripture that God has a definite idea about the nature and the purpose of church. Now, let's start in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, this is the evening of the very first Easter, okay? So we celebrated Easter just a few weeks ago. This was the very first Sunday Easter that ever occurred. And just a few days before this, on the Friday, right before this, just a few days earlier, Jesus had been murdered. The Jewish religious leaders had incited a mob and then manipulated that mob to put pressure on the Roman government to execute Jesus for no legal reason. And they did it. And, and they killed Jesus and they buried, they put him in a tomb. And now here are Jesus' followers. And it's a really small group, just a few, and they're scared. All of their hopes have been shattered. Everything that they thought was going to happen has not happened. And it seems like they've reached the end of the road. And not just has, is their whole movement kind of come to a sudden stop, but they're scared for their lives. And so they've locked the door because these same Jewish religious leaders, they've got the same power that they had just a couple of days earlier. And so they're locked in this room, scared to death, and suddenly Jesus is there. Now they're so freaked out by this that it says Jesus took pains to show them that he was really physically in the room with them. And once they saw that it was really him, he said to them, peace, be still, which is kind of like saying, chill out. Just roll with it. Everything's going to be okay. Which is a strange thing for a person who was once dead to say to a group of people that are hiding in a broom closet with the door locked, right? But he says this to them. And then look what he says in verse 20. Show them his hands, his sides. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now that's the, the second emotion we've seen in the passage, right? The first emotion was fear. Now that Christ is there, they're glad. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, you think this thing has come to a conclusion, but it's not. Tag, you're it. Your job is to now do what I was doing. Just like I was sent now it's your turn. It's your job to do that. Oh, and by the way, you can't handle this on your own, right? So verse 22 says, And he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He's approaching the fairway, and with these two statements, he's put the tee in the ground, and he's put the ball on top, and he is teeing up the church. With these two statements, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, and receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is critical stuff for all things new to listen to together tonight. 
This is big time, okay? Because this is right at the core of what it means to be a church. Now, there's a whole lot of other things that come into our minds when we ask, when we think about church. And we think about what it means to be a church and to do church. But this is right at the heart of it. What is the nature of the church? Well, we see here that the nature of the church is this. The church was promised by God to Abraham. It was brought into being through Jesus Christ. And it is energized by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, even as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He's saying, look, the church is about to start, but it's critical that you know from the beginning the church isn't a new thing. It is the continuation of a very old thing. This is God's gig. It's something that God's been doing for a long time. And as he calls all things new into existence, Janelle and I, we've got this garden in our backyard and some of our plants um, are really, really little. And every time it rains really big, I'm afraid that they're not going to make it. You know, if enough rain kind of accumulates, they're going to wash away. And sometimes when a church is getting started, we might feel like that. But it's critical for us to know that God is doing something that he's been doing for a long time. And he's called us into the midst of this. He's called us into the midst of a story. A story that started with God's promise to Abraham that reached its climax in Christ and is now continuing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, after this little exchange, Jesus spent 40 more days with his disciples teaching them about the church, preparing them for when um, the church was launched off the tee. He spends these 40 days doing this and he's helping them to see that they're not going to be alone, that it doesn't depend upon them, that it's God's thing, that God's been doing it and God's going to continue to do it. And in Acts chapter 2, we, we pick up the story after Jesus has spent these 40 days with them. And Jesus has left. The Bible says he ascended into heaven, which does not mean he floated away off in the sky somewhere. You'll have to come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about that, that heaven's not out and away. And then all of a sudden, the church starts with a tremendous amount of power. And they start telling people the story of Christ. And all of a sudden, the room is overflowing. And they can't hide in the broom closet anymore. There's no more space. The church has grown to thousands of people. And then we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very first description of what life was like in the early church. And as we read this passage, we, we, we have an insight not only into what the nature of the church is. The nature of the church is this thing that God's been doing for a long time, promised to Abraham, brought to a culmination in Christ, energized by the Spirit. That's the nature of the church. But here in Acts chapter 2, we begin to get a real feel for what the purpose of the church is. Now, when we take the passage, Acts chapter 2, that, that Wendy read, and we combine it with the passages of Scripture that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about worship, when we put these two passages of Scripture together, we discover this, that the church exists for two interrelated reasons. 
Number one, the church exists for the sake of worshiping Jesus Christ. That's the first reason that the church exists. And the second reason that the church exists is so that we will do the work of bringing God's transformative news of His renewal project to the whole of creation. Now that's what we're seeing here tonight, here in Acts chapter 2, that the Bible is one massive plot line. That God made it all, that sin broke it all, and that in Christ God was at work to renew it all, and then when Christ ascended, He created the church to carry on That work of partnering with God in making all things new. Now, it's really important for us to know right here at the beginning what this means. It's very important for us to be clear about the purposes of the church. Because, not not just here in Birmingham, but throughout the West, and, and I don't mean by that like West Texas or California, I mean Western civilization like Um, the whole parts of civilization that are under the Enlightenment since the 17th century. In the West, and and all the places where we've done mission, where we've colonized not only our politics, but our churches. In all of these places, there is a frequent temptation to replace God's purpose of the church with other purposes. Now, there are two kind of popular imposter purposes that we see and it's this frequently the church in the west is tempted to think that the church exists for the purpose of individual people their spiritual development and the other kind of imposter purpose is this the idea that the church exists so that we can be protected from this wicked world and get safely to heaven when we die. Now, our personal relationship with God, our personal spiritual development, and our arrival in safety in God's presence when this life is over, those are important things. Last week, we talked about that, the Good Shepherd. God cares about us personally in our own personal spiritual development. But that is not the main agenda of the church. In fact, when we look at these parts of Scripture and others, we see that that's that's a byproduct of the church's agenda. And it's a very good byproduct. But when you put those two things, when you put the personal spiritual development of people and escaping this wicked world and getting to heaven when you die, when you put those things into the driver's seat, they become tyrants. And it doesn't create a healthy church. I'm talking about what Scripture lays out as the root controlling main purpose of the church. Now, lots of churches have vision statements and mission statements and core values and all of these things. I'm not talking about the rhetoric. I'm talking about what's deep down in the basement of a church and is the real kind of controlling agenda of that institution. When a church has lost its moorings and when it drifts into the shoals of these substitute agendas, that's when churches 
devolve into pompous, arrogant, hypocritical clubs that guard the status quo. But when a church is guided by the North Star of God's purpose, well, that's what we see in Acts 2.42. Now, here we see people, their personal spiritual life, it is being developed, and we see that people are being connected to their Creator in a way that when they die, they do um, live forever with joy in His presence. But that's not their controlling, driving agenda. Again, the purpose of the church, it's, it's twofold. It's to worship Jesus Christ and to join with God as agents of announcing his transformation project to the whole creation. Now here in Acts chapter 2, the church is real clear about its mandate. Look what it says in, in verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They devoted themselves, and then Luke, the author of this, gives us four things. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and the prayers. Now, we have to be very careful here. These four things, they are not the purpose of the church. They are disciplines, corporate disciplines that this group of people gave themselves to in order to nourish them as a community as they pursued the purposes of the church. And that's very different. Because when you make these four things the purpose and you forget the agenda, a church turns in on itself. Or when you make servicing people spiritually the agenda, then a church turns in on itself. Or when you make becoming a safe place where we can escape the world, a church turns in on itself, becomes an enclave, and builds walls around itself and its community. This is not the purpose of this church. These are four things that the early church deliberately, corporately gave themselves to in order to nourish their mission. And their mission was twofold, to worship Jesus Christ and to declare the story of redemption to all of creation. Now let's, let's look at these four things real quick. First of all, this church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching. Now you could translate this, they gave their full attention to Scripture. That's what we're doing here tonight. We're listening to Scripture. One of the problems with our culture, and I'm talking specifically about what people call the Bible Belt, Birmingham, over the mountain. One of the problems with this culture is not that we know too much, but we know too little about God. Now, there's a lot of teaching and there's a lot of talk, but God in our culture has been co-opted by our culture. And there's a huge need in our community to learn more, more truth about God. For too long, we've read the Bible through the eyes of Americana, through the eyes of individualism and pragmatism and optimism. But the early church, they understood the Bible as the gift of God's Spirit to God's community for the purpose of nourishing them as they pursued this incredible 
mission. The church has always seen the need to give serious, prayerful attention to Scripture. To to be lifelong learners. And so that's important for us. So our liturgy, it's set up that listening to Scripture and being very careful about hearing what it says, this is an important part of what we do on a weekly basis. The second thing that the early church devoted themselves to was fellowship. Now we can translate this phrase, they devoted themselves to the common life. I like that better than the phrase fellowship because fellowship has been hijacked by churches and it's vacuous. It doesn't necessarily mean much to us anymore. They gave themselves to a way of living in which they lived life together. There's an investment of time, a reordering of their priorities and their commitments. And this sense of community that they had, it wasn't something they kind of whipped up. It was based on their shared experience of the Holy Spirit and their shared belief in Jesus Christ. They gave themselves to this. Now, we can read lots of places in the scriptures where it talks about how they actually lived out their commitment to the common life. They encouraged one another. They built one another up in the faith. They prayed with one another. They prayed for one another. But they made an investment of their own individual lives into the corporate life of the group. The third thing that we're told the church was devoted to is this, the breaking of bread. Now that seems like a very uh, mundane thing to add to the list. I mean, think about this. Luke is writing a historical document and he's trying to capture a Polaroid of what life was like for the early church. And as he looks at them and he synthesizes all of the things that they do, he decides that he can boil down their kind of disciplines that are critical for nourishing their life on the journey. And he boils them down to four. Scripture, prayer, fellowship, and eating together. Now Luke, the guy who wrote this, he's the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And when you read through the Gospel of Luke, you realize that Luke noticed something. On page after page after page in Luke's gospel, you find Jesus eating with people. A friend of mine likes to put it this way, that Jesus virtually ate his way through the gospels. And here's what I think happened. When the early church got started and and this incredible thing was going on and they realized that God was calling them to do something that was so big, it was intimidating and it could wear them out and burn them out, They began to look into the life of Jesus and ask themselves, what was it about Jesus that enabled him to be so centered even when life went crazy? And I think that the early church, the reason they picked these four things, scripture, fellowship, eating together in prayer, is that the early church noticed those were the four things that really nourished Christ in his life. Remember what Jesus said? The same thing I've been doing as I've been sent, now I send you. And if we as a church are going to be nourished for the arduous journey ahead, we've got to give ourselves to these same four things. One other, 
It says the fourth thing they devoted themselves to is the prayers. I don't know what version of the Bible you have. Literally, it is the prayers. And the reason it's the prayers is because that these guys who converted, they were orthodox, devout Jews. And they prayed seven times a day. Sort of like Muslims do now. They have set times every day where they have set prayers. The Jews did the same thing. Frequently, we find references in the Gospels to Jesus going to the synagogue or going to the temple. And it, the reason he's going is because he's going to pray. Now, part of what this means is this. Just like in a moment, we're going to spend some time in prayer. The early church devoted itself not to just spontaneous kind of prayer when you feel like it, but to set liturgical prayer because that was a part of their life already up into that moment. Now look at verse 43. It says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It seems that the gift of the Holy Spirit and the result of committing themselves to these four nourishing disciplines, it was sort of like HGH or miracle Grow on steroids. It, it did something to this group. And as a result of whatever was going on, God blessed this group with his presence. And we see his presence in three ways. One, there were miracles. People were healed of diseases. And it also, there's also a, the presence of God in verse 44. All those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is the presence of God. This is the presence of God for a group. We've got to admit something here. There is a huge connection between us today and these guys, this early church did not have a secure economic base. But somehow, in the midst of an incredible economic insecurity, somehow the Spirit of God in them generated so much love that they spontaneously sold stuff to help each other out. Now, the third way we see that God's presence was manifested, it says down in verse 46, and day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, we're not going to spend any time on this. Let me just mention it. Throughout Scripture, one of the marks of the presence of God is joy. This was a manifestation of the presence of God in their midst. Now, we're not surprised to read that here's a church that's filled with miracles, filled with generosity, and filled with joy. And then we come across verse 47. They were having favor with people. Sure, they're going to have favor with people, right? It's a joy-filled, miracle-filled, generous kind of place. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And then it says the very last thing in the chapter, and day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. As the life of this community radiated the light of God's kingdom, people were drawn out of darkness. Now what would happen to us here in our over-the-mountain communities 
If we keep the main thing, the main thing. If in the face of all of the temptations to any alternative, we say the purpose of church is to worship Jesus Christ and to be agents of His restoration project, And in order to nourish ourselves with such a huge agenda, we make deliberate corporate commitments to Scripture, to our life with one another, eating together, and to prayer. And in the midst of all of that, God's Spirit begins to grow in our church. And miracles occur. Real miracles. Like somebody's sick and we lay hands on them and they get healed. And real miracles like we sell stuff to help each other out. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? To love each other more than stuff. To stop clinging on to everything. And instead, begin, even in this economic situation that we're in, we begin to share and to give it away as individuals and as a church. What would happen if that kind of generosity and joy began to mark this church? That would be a powerful witness for the new world that Jesus is inaugurating. That he inaugurated at Easter. That's happening all over. We hear the stories like what's going on in Rwanda with the Peace Commission. What what happened in South Africa. What kind of story is waiting to be written here? Jesus has given us a mission. The risen Christ says to us the same thing he said to that small group scared and hiding in a locked room. Locked room. He says the same thing to us. In the same way that the Father sent me, I am sending you and I'm giving you my Holy Spirit to energize you for this task. Let's pray.